You're listening to The Herald, normally recorded by volunteers at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently being recorded from homes across Greater Glasgow. Please enjoy this week's articles. The Herald, Monday the 23rd of November 2020. News. Coronavirus in Scotland. No relaxation of lockdown for New Year. This article is by Tom Gordon. Nicola Sturgeon has said she expects there to be a slight and careful relaxation of COVID restrictions at Christmas, but not at New Year. The First Minister also warned that any visits would carry a risk of infection and said people should not feel under pressure to see loved ones just because it was possible. She said people should think very carefully if they really needed to travel and visit people indoors or could meet more safely online instead. She said, it's maybe worth asking yourself now, do we need to visit family or friends over Christmas? Because if we feel we don't have to, then delaying a visit until the spring, especially if that visit involves travel, might be a better option. And it may leave more space for those who really do need to, to be able to care for a vulnerable elderly relative, for example, to do so. She also revealed she had abandoned her own plans for a festive gathering of 10 people at home and had yet to decide whether to meet her own parents at Christmas. She said she would decide on what was best for them, given the continued health risks. The Scottish Cabinet is expected to sign off four nation plans for a limited change to the rules on indoor gatherings at Christmas tomorrow. Although there is speculation up to four households may be allowed to meet up, Ms Sturgeon said the discussion had not been around a number as high as that. The Cabinet Office said on Sunday that leaders across the UK had endorsed an objective of some limited additional household bubbling over the Christmas period for a few days. However, Ms Sturgeon stressed the details were still not finalised and the conclusions would be confirmed later in the week. It would be difficult to strike the right balance, she admitted. She said, reducing the prevalence of the virus will allow us to consider a slight and careful, and I want to stress today those words slight and careful, easing of the rules for a few days over the festive period. There is an obvious desire to see loved ones at Christmas. I think we all feel that very strongly, but also a lot of anxiety about the potential risks associated with that, Particularly, we are at a time when we are starting to see perhaps the end of the pandemic loom on horizon. So we are trying as hard as we can to reach a sensible balance. So it is possible, likely in fact, that some households may be able to form slightly larger bubbles with each other for a short period over Christmas. And we are considering this because we recognise that isolation and loneliness can hit people particularly hard over the Christmas period. And so for some people, doing the right thing at Christmas will mean taking time to care for and be with loved ones who might otherwise be on their own. That said, we cannot ignore that any relaxation of the restrictions carries additional risk. She went on, I'm afraid the virus won't take Christmas off. And so if we provide it with opportunities to spread from household to household, it is likely to take those. That would be a worry at any time, but perhaps more so when we could be within weeks of being able to vaccinate a significant proportion of the population. And so it's for these reasons we need to be sensible and careful. And it is also why 
that when we do set out the rules, which will apply over the festive period, we also, the Scottish Government, intend to set out the precautions that we are advising people to take. We will remind families that just because you might be able to mix a bit more indoors over Christmas in a limited way, that doesn't mean you have to do it, that if you don't think it is necessary or you can get through Christmas without it. We will ask people to think very carefully about if you really need to travel and visit indoors or if there are other ways, for example through technology or by meeting outside, in which you can ensure our loved ones are well without taking risks. Professor Bald, Professor of Public Health at the University of Edinburgh, said that meeting people indoors would not come without risks. She told BBC Good Morning Scotland, Many of us would wish to see our older relatives at Christmas, and we know that mortality from COVID-19 is significantly higher for older people. I think around 86% of deaths in hospital occurred in people over the age of 65, so this is concerning. At the moment, we still have levels of infection in the community across the UK that are higher than we would wish. If we come together with people from different households, at the time of year when the windows are closed, the people you care about, physical distancing is difficult, it is an opportunity for the virus to spread. So this is really, really tough. Professor Bald said that in planning whether people can meet over the festive period, governments may also be concerned about mental health, with levels of depression and anxiety significantly higher than expected for the time of year due to the pandemic. This discussion is about trying to recognise that there are not only harms from the virus, there are other harms. People want to see their loved ones, she said. She added that even if restrictions are eased, people should make their own decisions about what they feel comfortable doing. It is up to us to decide, even if government says, OK, you can get together indoors with other people, let's all make our own risk assessment about the people we care about and ourselves and see how we are going to apply that to our own personal circumstances. So I think, as with everything throughout this pandemic, it has got to be a partnership between guidance and support that the government gives and what people decide to do for themselves and for their families. Gillian Evans, Head of Health Intelligence at NHS Grampian, told Good Morning Scotland she was against restrictions being eased simply because it's Christmas. She added, It certainly sounds as if that is a trade-off that you behave now, keep transmission low, then we might be able to do something over Christmas that resembles something familiar to us. The best Christmas present we can give to people is to keep them safe. It really is the bottom line. The best way to keep safe is to try and avoid the risk as much as possible, and if you must meet family, which most of us are longing to do, try to do it outdoors if you possibly can. And fingers crossed we get a dry and less windy and wet Christmas time. Even John Keenan, the Bishop of Paisley, who last month called for a 24-hour Christmas truce involving a lifting of restrictions, admitted he was conflicted. Although he welcomed politicians considering a way to accommodate Christmas during the pandemic, he told the BBC, He said, The thought of my mum, who's a widow, being on her own all through Christmas Day is an awful thought for me. 
On the other hand, the thought that I might go there and pass on a virus to her is equally awful, so I think we're all conflicted about it. This article is by Tom Gordon. Herald Scotland recorded on Monday 23rd of November 2020. Kareen Polwart on a beautiful book of spells for the natural world by Kareen Polwart. On the gilded starry night cover of The Lost Spells, the gorgeous new collection of charms and blessings, lullabies and psalms from Robert McFarlane and Jackie Morris, there's a barn owl. She's hovering mid-air with her eye on something below. In Scottish Gaelic, she's Kaliachoya Gyal, the white old woman of the night. One of my favourite creatures in life and myth, a harbinger of both birth and death. She's there in the frontispiece too, and just before the end papers clutching a golden key. The key she holds is to seek, speak, and find the richness of life beyond her own human existence. Let the world's whisper call you in, urges the barn owl charm at the heart of this book's 21 spells. If it's about attentive listening, the lost spells is unapologetically also about making sound. These are spells to enchant, to conjure, and to sing out. They're not of the page, but intended to fly. The Lost Spells is the pocket-sized little sister to 2017's The Lost Words. Robert and Jackie's acclaimed and hugely popular project to conjure 20 common nature words and species back into everyday life from the edges of modern disuse and disconnection. The Lost Words was instigated by the excision of many flower, tree, bird and animal nouns from the Oxford Junior Dictionary, bumped out in favour of newcomers from our 21st century technological lexicon. Those nature words and the life they illuminate across the vast airy pages of the book are at the heart of much of my own writing and singing and the familiar landscapes that inform them. Heather and Heron, Lark and Wren, they're the pulse of my outdoor life at home too. Bramble from the Burnside boiled into jam, a startling murmuration that swirls around our village at dusk every winter. For me this is true of almost all the words and species in the lost spells. Silver birch and beech, Curlew and Daisy, Gannet, Gorse and Goldfinch. But not everyone's life is like mine. And amongst the many injustices unveiled by this Covid era is our unequal access to land and to non-human life and the judgement that attends our human animal need and right for outdoor space. The Lost Words burst beyond its pages in wild and unexpected ways, speaking with colour, rhythm and attentiveness to a precarious moment of ecological unravelling. The book sparked thousands of creative environmental projects in schools and local communities and found its way into palliative and dementia care settings too. Jackie's vivid images now grace the walls of several hospices and hospitals. The spaciousness of words and image in the lost words left ample room for musical responses too, amongst them spell songs, an ensemble of eight folk-inspired writer-musicians and the most beautiful collaborative writing project I've ever been part of. Working with Robert and Jackie, we have together already transmuted some of the lost spells into song. Grey Seal is one such. Go now, Selkie boy, swim from the shore, rinse your ears clean of human chatter. Scottish folklore, and especially the traditions of the Hebrides and Northern Isles, is rich with the lore of Selkies, those shape-shifting creatures that slip their skins between land and sea. Gaelic singer Julie Fowlis and Arcadian songwriter Chris Drever were then the perfect humans to whittle Robert's half-drowning, half-dreaming spell into music. Julie describes the process. 
Late one night after dinner, Chris Drever and I found a quiet corner and ploughed through chords, riffs and ideas. We must have tried at least 30 little musical notions, but the moment he played that hypnotic progression to me, which became the opening sequence, I knew we had found the musical core for the lyrics. The top line melody came in full and instantly, and Selkie Boy was born into song. All musicians know this kind of alchemy when something seems to write itself. It's the product of decades of embodied craft and knowing, trust and instinct, but it feels and sounds like magic. There's a poignancy in the lost spell's encouragement to speak and sing out these spells for more than human lives around us. I've been offering digital school workshops recently. Ordinarily, I'd work with communal song and mass rhythmic incantation, but school children are not, for now, allowed to talk above speaking pitch, let alone to sing. A certain kind of bold embodied enchanting is impossible. Whilst this is a collective health imperative, it robs us of something vital too. We need the visceral power and wild magic of our voices now, and the imminent sense of something bigger than our individual selves. I'd been dipping in and out of the lost spells for a fortnight before I thought to peek behind the shiny barn owl dust jacket. It reveals a lush blue hardback debossed with the wings of giant moths. Flocks of wee multicoloured moths flit across the end papers too. Willow ermine, feathered thorn and seraphim. The little known names for these lesser loved or even noticed creatures are delicious in the tongue and moths themselves and the charm to celebrate them persists at the edges of consciousness like distant memory, half forgotten grief. It's a spell for another barely noted species of the edges that resonates most strongly with me right now, the hardy sea pink or thrift which clings to our coastal fringes. Thrift knows hardship is a limit, not a failing it declares. As the Marcus Rashford free school meals furor shows, these desperate economic times give fresh impetus to those who view hardship, poverty and the limits of reasonable human thrift as a form of individual moral failure rather than an occasion for collective societal care. Disregard for human life mirrors disregard for the non-human realm that sustains us all. The spell for thrift concludes... Thrift persists against all odds, and thrift's gift is, thrift's grace is, to give a glimpse of hope in the tightest of spots, the toughest of places. I'm no longer sure what it is to hope when loss is, as Robert and Jackie describe it, the tune of our age, but still, let's hope. The Lost Spells by Robert McFarlane and Jackie Morris is published by Hamish Hamilton, £14.99. The Spell Songs album, featuring Kareen Polwart, Julie Fowlis, Chris Trevor, Sekou Keita, Rachel Newton, Jim Molyneux, Beth Porter and Kerry Andrew, is available now. The Spell Songs Ensemble will perform a live concert broadcast from the National History Museum in London on February 2, 2021. Tickets available now. By Kareen Polwart. The Herald, Friday the 20th of November 2020. News. Eilie in Collins A sees improving numbers of rare red-billed coughs. This article is by Jodie Harrison. Efforts to save one of Scotland's rarest birds have been effective in preventing further large population declines, a report has found. In 2018, there were fewer than 50 breeding pairs of red-billed coughs left on the island of Islay in Collinsey, the only place the birds are found. The birds are threatened simultaneously by lack of food, affecting first-year survival, parasites and low genetic diversity. However, conservation efforts by government agency Nature Scott 
which included feeding chicks and tackling bugs that bother the birds, has been deemed a success. Survival rates for newly hatched coughs have increased, while those treated for parasites recovered after two to three days. The success of the programme means it has now been extended for a further two years, while other longer-term recovery options are explored. Nature Scott funded an emergency supplementary feeding programme that began in 2010 at multiple sites on Islay with treatment of parasites from 2014 alongside monitoring of the population. Further measures will be needed to stabilise the species, including habit improvements and reinforcing the population with birds from other UK populations to reduce inbreeding. The detailed analysis in the report was carried out thanks to the tireless and committed long-term monitoring of the population by the Scottish Cough Study Group, RSPB Scotland, Aberdeen and Glasgow Universities and SRUC, which began in 1983. Nature Scott ornithologist Dr Jessica Shaw said, This robust report is the culmination of years of practical and scientific work to prevent the loss of cough from Scotland, with painstaking work by committed individuals on the islands. It demonstrates that these dedicated efforts have been successful in the short term and we're pleased to confirm that Nature Scott will continue to fund and support this cough conservation work over the next two years. The report makes several recommendations for the longer term and we will now explore options for the future in consultation with partners in Scottish Government and the Scottish Cough Forum. Professor Davy McCracken of the Scottish Cough Study Group said this is an excellent example of combining collaborative research and cutting-edge modelling to address a practical nature conservation issue. We look forward to contributing to further key work, especially to improving feeding habits for cough. This should focus on key grassland fields where adults take their young to feed after fledgling and on those sand dunes systems of crucial importance to cough for the early years of their life. This article is by Jodie Harrison. Herald Scotland recorded on Monday 23rd of November 2020. Walking Britain's Lost Railways, Channel 5 series returns by Susan Swarbrick, columnist and senior features writer. What's the story? Walking Britain's Lost Railways. You have my attention. Britain's railway was once the envy of the world. Around 5,000 miles of track were axed and more than 2,300 stations closed in the 1960s, mainly in rural areas following the beaching report. Presenter Rob Bell, an engineer, has long been fascinated by these disappeared lines. This new four-part series explores lost routes and the stories of the landscapes and communities they transformed. Tell me more. The opening episode discovers how train travel unlocked large swathes of North Devon, including the glamorous Atlantic Coast Express service. Scottish viewers won't want to miss episode 2, brackets airing December 4, close brackets, which charts the history of the former calendar in Oban Railway, a 70-mile route from the Trossachs to the West Coast. What does it entail? Setting off from calendar, Bell explores the 14 years of determination it took to build the railway and how, with the help of local hero Rob Roy, it changed Victorian perceptions of the Highlands. 
The episode takes in Glen Ogle, a valley likened by Queen Victoria to the infamous Khyber Pass, and Loch Tay, where a remarkable branch line was built to capitalise on the tourist trade. When can I watch? Walking Britain's Lost Railways returns to Channel 5 Friday, 8pm, by Susan Swarbrick. The Herald, Tuesday the 24th of November 2020. News. Coronavirus. Higher pollution levels could amplify spread. This article is by Caroline Wilson. Higher concentrations of pollutant particles could amplify the waves of coronavirus contamination, scientists have suggested, and may explain in part the geographic profile of the COVID-19 pandemic. The correlation between fine particulate matter and the severity of influenza waves is said to be well known to epidemiologists. Fine particles, also known as PM2.5, have an aerodynamic diameter less than or equal to 2.5 micrometres and are produced from combustion processes, vehicles and industrial sources. Glasgow is among the UK cities with the highest levels of PM2.5s in the country, with a concentration of 16 micrograms per cubic metre. Researchers from the University of Geneva, UNIGE, investigated possible interactions between acutely elevated levels of fine particular matter and the virulence of the coronavirus disease. COVID-19 studies carried out in Italy and France suggest that COVID-19 was already present in Europe at the end of 2019, while the sharp increase in morbidity and mortality was only recorded in spring 2020 in Paris and London. Mario Rohrer, a Swiss climatologist who was also involved in the study, said this suggests something else was at play. He said this time lag is surprising but also suggests that something else than just the mere interaction of people may promote the transmission of the virus and particularly the severity of the infection. His research team has been able to show that these increases in cases followed phases where the levels of fine particulars in the air were higher. The team made similar observations in the Swiss canton of Ticino, where fine particle pollution increased sharply during a period of shallow fog on the Magadino Plain and the Soto Serena observed at the end of February 2020. Shortly afterwards, an explosive increase in hospital admissions due to COVID-19 was recorded in Ticino. The fact that a large carnival event with some 150,000 visitors took place at the same time probably had an additional impact on the spread of the virus, said Mr Rohrer. The information is important for Switzerland because the increase in fine particle concentrations is particularly frequent during thermal inversions, i.e. when fog forms on the Swiss plateau thus limiting the exchange of air masses. In these situations, emissions accumulate in the layer of air underneath the fog. Switzerland is also frequently swept by dust from Saharan sandstorms, 
also pointed out in this study. The Swiss research team shows that acute concentrations of fine particles, especially those smaller than 2.5 micrometers, cause inflammation of the respiratory, pulmonary and cardiovascular tracts and thicken the blood. In combination with a viral infection, these inflammatory factors can lead to a serious progression of the disease. Inflammation also promotes the attachment of the virus to cells and the coronavirus may also be transported by the fine particles. This has already been demonstrated for influenza and an Italian study found coronavirus RNA on fine particles. All this remains to be demonstrated, of course, but it is a likely possibility, added Mr. Rohr. The researchers said that although particulate matter pollution can influence the virulence of the virus and possible severe disease progression, physiological, social or economic factors will clearly also influence the further course of the pandemic. Mario Rohrer said the study offers the possibility of taking preventative measures in the event of future increases in fine particulate matter concentrations to try to limit a new flare-up of COVID-19 morbidity and mortality. Their results are published in the journal Earth Systems and Environment. This article is by Caroline Wilson. Loch Goyle, Kat Kuby, shares her favourite Scottish loch. Kat Kuby, TV presenter and podcaster. Where is it? Loch Goyle in Argyll, the prettiest loch with the not-so-pretty name. Goyle has two possible meanings. Boyle, and having got into wild swimming there during lockdown, I can tell you it is definitely not boiling, and to cry or weep. The beauty of this loch and how it makes me feel is enough to spark a good greet with happy tears. Like so many of the West Coast, its ruggedness is both enthralling and a little bit scary, making you feel both small and thanks to the height of the mountains around it on top of the world. Why do you go there? My parents have had a place at Loch Goyle for more than 20 years, but moved there full time at the start of the year. I've spent a lot of time there, so its familiarity makes it home. But I also get excited about going as it still feels like a bit of a treat. How often do you go? Whenever we can. This year that has meant at times more than normal. During the summer we tried to go as much as possible, but now I'm not sure when we will be able to get back. How did you discover it? Through my parents. I like the idea that places are like heirlooms. My parents passed their love of the West Coast and Loch Goyle to me, and I hope to pass it on to my kids. What's your favourite memory? During the summer, there were two northern bottlenose whales in the loch. They weren't distressed. It's a very deep loch and had just lost their way. It was incredible to see these two hugely beautiful animals at home from our home. On the same day, we also saw porpoises and a bob of seals that lives there too. The kids were so excited, it was like having a wildlife park on our doorstep. Who do you take? My family and friends. What do you take? Marshmallows. We make a small fire on the beach if it's dry enough, so after pottering about looking for crabs, we can sit down with a bit of warmth. It helps keep the midges away and enjoy the view with a marshmallow in hand. What do you leave behind? Worries. 
That sense of always being on and looking at a phone, it feels like somewhere to breathe and not just because the air is so lovely. Sum it up in five words. Watching the weather roll in. What travel spot is on your post-lockdown wish list? Everywhere. This year has made me value home. There's so much of Scotland that I don't see enough of and I want to explore other places. I miss that connection of discovering and learning about other cultures, so I think top of my list would be somewhere exotic and otherworldly. I would love to visit the Mayan temples in Mexico. Kat Kuby co-hosts the Sleep Mums podcast with baby and child sleep expert Sarah Carpenter, aimed at helping new parents get better sleep. You are listening to the Herald Scotland, recorded on Tuesday 24th November 2020. Pretty Patel outrage shows just how infantile politics has become. An opinion article by Stuart Wayton. I haven't watched Question Time in eons, and after last week's effort, I remember why. Dominated as it was, at a time of health, Brexit and economic crisis, by the question of Pretty Patel's bullying of civil servants. The Honourable Millionaire Sir Philip Rutnam, ex-Permanent Secretary at the Home Office, resigned because of Patel's behaviour. Shame he didn't feel so honourable about his overseeing of the Windrush scandal. Nevertheless, the Question Time panel, overseen by that political heavyweight Fiona Bruce, felt emboldened by the tale of bullying. This was an issue over which they could all show off their moral gravitas against the uncaring, nasty Tories. I was waiting for someone to explain how these horrible politicians make them squeam and squeam and squeam. Patel's behaviour had apparently breached something called the Ministerial Code, a code that sounds ancient and grand, but that actually emerged in the 1990s and was given its name by Tony Blair. Having abandoned socialism, this was a time when New Labour replaced politics with managerialism and government increasingly became an exercise in the best practice of codes and processes. The 1990s was also a time when the term workplace bullying first came into existence. Before this, bullying was a term used almost exclusively when discussing the behaviour of children rather than adults. Partly assisted by the now impotent trade unions, the regulation of bullying shifted workplace difficulties away from collective issues and disputes between workers and bosses towards the managing of personal interactions. In the process, the workplace became a playground, overseen by a growing army of friendly-faced human resource managers. The Ministerial Code has no definition of bullying as such, but the government website takes you to an ACAS document that explains that bullying includes offensive or insulting behaviour, and Pretty Patel was certainly both of these things. However, even if Patel is the worst manager in the world, is this really the issue of the day? In fact, is it an issue at all? Where is the politics in all of this beyond the inane alternative name-calling about nasty politicians who bully? But then I guess this is to miss the point that in fact talking about codes of behaviour, moralising about the vulnerable and standing up as an advocate of victims is in fact what today's infantile politics has become.
The Herald, Tuesday the 24th of November 2020, News. Scottish Government's Infrastructure Investment Plan Deeply Inadequate to Tackle Climate Change. This article is by Caitlin Hutchison. Paths for All, RSPB Scotland, Sustrans Scotland, Transform Scotland and WWF Scotland send joint letter to Scottish ministers to express their deep concern. They have warned that planned transport spending could prevent Scotland from meeting the target of achieving net zero emissions by 2045. The group of organisations fear that, as it stands, the Scottish Government's infrastructure investment plan is deeply inadequate when it comes to helping cut emissions from the transport sector. Transform Scotland Director Colin Howden said the current spending proposal contains plenty of window dressing about future transport investment decisions following climate priorities. He said to make the deep cuts in transport emissions that are needed, investment needs to be focused away from spending on roads. Transform Scotland has been joined by WWF Scotland, RSPB Scotland, Sustrin Scotland and Paths for All in sending an open letter to Transport and Infrastructure Secretary Michael Matheson. In it, they told him, surface transport remains one of the largest contributors to climate change in Scotland, responsible for 25% of all emissions. Despite emission reduction goals being in place since 2009, emissions have since risen. While the declaration of a climate emergency has given this issue greater urgency within government, we have yet to see a shift to the transformational approach that is required. The group said historical transport policy in Scotland has had a strong bias towards investing in high carbon transport infrastructure, such as spending on roads. Campaigners argued ministers needed to shift these priorities to create a more sustainable transport system. But they said they were extremely troubled to find the draft infrastructure investment plan has failed to make this change. As it stands, they said, the spending proposal continues to support Transport Scotland's multi-billion pound road building programme, yet contains no new or additional funds for sustainable transport investment. They added, We are concerned that it will reinforce existing trends towards road capacity expansion, preventing us from reaching net zero by 2045. Mr Howden said the infrastructure investment plan fails to prioritise investment in low-carbon sustainable transport. Instead, it continues with the same old set of high-carbon roads projects that has made transport the single largest source of emissions in Scotland. The plan contains plenty of window dressing about future transport investment decisions following climate priorities, but this is deeply inadequate. In order to make deep cuts in climate emissions, we need to see transport investment prioritised on climate change grounds now. This article is by Caitlin Hutchison. One by one, Ruth Ware 
Harvard Secker, £12.99. Ruth Ware has a knack for nailing the creepy fear and paranoia that builds in eerie, isolated locations. She weaves her gripping thrillers in secluded forests, remote country houses and claustrophobic cruise ship cabins. It's a winning formula. Her 2019 book, The Turn of the Key, about a live-in nanny and four children, was a well-received update of Henry James's 1898 gothic suspense and horror novella, The Turn of the Screw, pitched at a modern audience. Ware's latest novel, One by One, continues in that vein with a deftly written homage and contemporary twist on Agatha Christie's classic murder mystery, and then there were none. The book opens with a chilling news report, a deadly avalanche, a series of grisly deaths, and the authorities blamed for not stepping in sooner. As has become her modus operandi, Ware hooks the reader into a glamorous world that glitters with danger. In the case of One by One, if you like seeing self-aggrandizing hipsters being killed off, then you have come to the right place. Things begin in typically idyllic fashion, as an eclectic group of guests arrive at a swish alpine chalet in the exclusive French ski resort of Saint-Antoine for their corporate retreat. They are the founders, shareholders and senior employees of a social media music app called Snoop, a cross between Facebook and Spotify, which allows people to listen to the same tracks as any fellow users they are snooping on. As you might expect, the Snoop Mob are a gratingly ridiculous and preening bunch with laugh-out-loud job titles that include Head of Beans, Chief Nerd, Friends Czar, Head of Cool and Lawman, a tongue-in-cheek nod to some well-known tech startups. The reason for their powwow is to decide whether to go ahead with a billion-dollar dot-com buyout that could make them rich, although not without some sacrifices. The clock is ticking on the offer, and with the group split about what to do, tensions run high. Two opposing camps form under co-founders Toffer St. Clair Bridges and Eva Vandenberg, who each have starkly different visions for the company's future. At loggerheads, the team hits the ski slopes to blow off steam, not all of them make it back from an ill-advised decision to tackle a treacherous black run. Moments later, their cabin is hit by an avalanche. Then members of the group start getting picked off one by one. Their picturesque snowy retreat morphs from a welcome escape to an oppressive prison. As the temperature drops, mobile phone reception is cut off, food begins to dwindle and the mountain rescue fail to arrive. As various protagonists set off to find help, things begin to unravel. Ware tells the story from two perspectives. There's Shallie Girl Erin, whose cool, collected demeanour hides a murky past, and Liz, a former Snoop employee who never fitted in with the gang's effortlessly cool and affluent backgrounds, yet with a small but crucial share in the company, finds herself a pawn in the takeover bid. A novel's resonance is often down to the time and place that a reader consumes it. As we all live under the omnipresent threat of lockdown, Escapism to another kind of suffocating isolation and terror proves curiously uplifting. One by one is a galloping read, packed with dark secrets and all the page-turning prowess you would hope for from a psychological thriller and murder mystery. Even if you do have an inkling of the killer's identity early on, the twisting plot is such that you will still be left guessing who will survive and who will meet an unfortunate end the climax of a perilous high-speed cat-and-mouse chase through the snow will make you gasp.
Recorded from the Herald, 25th of November 2020. SPFL call for urgent Hollywood summit to end fan lockout in Scottish football. Christopher Jack. The SPFL have called for an emergency meeting with First Minister Nicola Sturgeon and the government to end the lockout of supporters in Scottish football. Clubs in England have been given the green light to welcome supporters back into their grounds in the coming days after Prime Minister Boris Johnson agreed new regulations for sport. A maximum of 4,000 fans will be allowed at outdoor events in the lowest-risk areas when the four-week lockdown in England ends next month. Up to 2,000 people will be allowed in Tier 2, but no crowds will be permitted in Tier 3 areas. Now SPFL Chief Executive Neil Doncaster has written to Holyrood seeking urgent discussions over the way forward for our game as clubs across the country continue to feel the financial pressure of empty stadia this term. Doncaster said... Scottish football fans are the most passionate in Europe, with more league attendances per capita than any other country. So our clubs have been hit far harder by the lockout than those in England, because we depend much more heavily on gate receipts. Every major club in Scotland has very detailed, well-founded plans in place for safely returning fans back to stadiums, and thousands upon thousands of Scottish fans are simply desperate to get back quickly to watching their teams and the safety of a carefully managed open-air environment. We are now calling on the First Minister to do the right thing by Scotland's hard-pressed football supporters. If it's good enough for English fans, it must be good enough for Scottish fans. If the First Minister refuses to allow football fans all over Scotland to watch their beloved teams in carefully regulated limited numbers complete with track and trace, she will have to explain to them the clinical difference between Scottish fans and English fans. Make no mistake, failure to get fans back in the very near future will send the death knell for some of our best-loved clubs, and no one wants that. The First Minister alone has the opportunity to put a smile on the faces of Scottish football fans and give them a much-needed early Christmas present, and we are calling for meaningful, urgent engagement. Despite the enormous financial consequences, our clubs have followed every directive and every instruction from the Scottish Government for month after month. Clubs, supporters and players have been hugely patient. Apart from supporter safety, there is no higher priority for our game. It's now time to get the fans back. We have written to the First Minister seeking an emergency meeting because time is really against us. We will meet with her at any time, day or night, to fit in with her busy schedule and we await her response. The clubs have done the hard work of putting their plans in place for the safe return of fans in limited numbers. All we need now is for the First Minister to say yes. You are listening to The Herald Scotland, recorded on Wednesday the 25th of November 2020. Sitting out Christmas won't kill us, but the alternative might. An opinion article by Rosemary Goring, literary editor and columnist. You could say that Christmas as we know it was invented by Charles Dickens. Scenes of glorious overindulgence are highlights in his novels putting pork pies, plum pudding and port wine at the heart of the celebrations, along with generosity and good cheer. In great expectations, however, it is a far from happy event. Young Pip spends the day in a state of guilt and panic. Even the arrival of guests like Uncle Pumblechook, with their usual gifts and greetings, in his case sherry and wine, offers only a temporary respite. Quote, Every Christmas Day he presented himself as a profound novelty with exactly the same words 
and carrying the two bottles like dumbbells, unquote. Repetition and tradition are part of the seasonal joy, but Pip finds no fun in any of it. He is worried that his sister will notice he had stolen food from the pantry for the escaped convict Magwitch. That, and a file to remove his leg iron. Only a search party of soldiers saves him from being found out. Come Christmas Day, British festivities will be as unfettered as our lieges will allow, but I suspect some will feel almost as uneasy as Pip when they congregate around the tree. As turkey is carved and crackers pulled, how many will be wondering if Covid, rather than the army, will soon be knocking on the door? As yet, details of the promised brief armistice to allow family gatherings over the period are unknown. Boris's notion of a five-day dispensation for up to three households has already been dismissed by the First Minister. Her somewhat tight-lipped response to this proposal has been, if not exactly Scrooge-like, certainly far from inviting. Quote, It will be a small number of days and a small number of households, she said, when asked what we could expect. She also added that people should not feel under pressure to take advantage of the relaxation of rules. Nobody, her expression suggested, should be cajoled or coerced into company if they are not comfortable at the idea. Even Boris, the greatest pantomime dame ever to occupy number 10, felt obliged to urge caution. Quote, "'Tis the season to be jolly,' he said, "'but tis also the season to be jolly careful.'" For once I almost cheered him. It is not difficult to imagine what those trying to contain the contagion feel at the prospect of the four nations crisscrossing these aisles and spending days in the bosoms of their family. Assembling over a convivial lunch or dinner is worrying enough, but staying overnight ratchets up the risks. To help people decide how far they are prepared to push their luck, Scientists at the Georgia Institute of Technology have created a COVID risk assessment map showing the odds of someone catching the disease in a gathering of 10. Those in Orkney and Shetland have a less than 1% chance. In Dudley, Stoke-on-Trent and Hartlepool it is 29%. The rest of us lie somewhere in between. The problem is nobody, well almost nobody, wants to cancel Christmas. Epidemiologists and NHS managers might happily keep us on a leash to protect the nation and hospital beds, but politicians know that to clamp us all in chains, like Magwitch, is untenable. Not only would thousands break the rules regardless, but it would poison voters' opinion of their leaders. Getting between the electorate and their families would never be forgiven, Yet it now seems almost inevitable that, by allowing people to be with their nearest and dearest for a short spell, there will be a third spike in cases in January. This at hospitals' busiest periods, even in the best of times. Added to which is the almost guaranteed flouting of social distancing rules over New Year in some households. Just as A&E medics dread the Hogmanay shift, so this year police on duty as 2021 arrives will be braced for a hotline inundated with callers reporting unlawful revelry. Already I feel wistful at the thought of an entirely unsociable yuletide. Even so, 
I cannot understand why people feel they must be given the leeway to mix when it puts so many in danger. It might be justifiable if there was no hope of a vaccine on the horizon. Faced with the likelihood of never-ending separation, an argument could be made for a limited truce in the fight against Covid, to offer a glimmer of light and companionship in an otherwise exceedingly bleak midwinter. But at this very moment, with talk of life returning to something close to normality around Easter, news we have been longing for these past nine months, it seems little short of madness to loosen the ties that bind us for the sake of a few weeks' extra endurance. This is not to say that Christmas doesn't matter. Of course it does. Only the flintiest are untouched by it. But does it matter more than people's lives or health? Would you be willing to risk introducing the virus to an elderly relative or friend who might, as a result, not live to see the spring or enjoy several more good years? Given how close we are to the finishing line, can't we all just calm down? It's only Christmas after all. For Christians, none of the season's significance will be lost. This year's sorrows and privations might even enhance its meaning allowing more time for contemplation and compassion and less for commercialism and consumer binging. All the more reason, too, to make a splash on Easter Sunday, which some consider more meaningful. For others, caught up as we usually are in the enjoyable fraught business of buying gifts, stocking the fridge and entertaining friends and family, these are postponable pleasures. Regardless of whether we meet or not, Online shopping will boom, as will the Royal Mail. I picture carol singing from the safety of everyone's doorstep on Christmas Eve, with some half-frozen keyboard player belting out Silent Night from as far into the street as the electric cord will stretch. What matters most is that children will still have a ball. Meanwhile, the rest of us can get by this once without all the social trimmings. It won't kill us or those we love. The same, alas, cannot be said of Covid. The Herald, Wednesday the 25th of November 2020. News. Scottish economy grows again, but at a low ebb. This article is by Tom Gordon. Scotland's economy has grown for the fifth month in a row, but the recovery from coronavirus is slowing down, according to official figures. The latest monthly estimates found onshore GDP increased by 1.6% in September. However, the economy remains 7.6% smaller than when COVID first struck in February. The 1.6% increase in September was the smallest since the economy slumped during the first lockdown and GDP fell by 5.6% and 19.3% in March and April respectively. Since then it has grown by 2.4% in May, 6.3% in June, 6.9% in July and 2.6% in August. September saw growth in all of the main sectors of the economy, but again this was slower than in the summer, pointing to economic struggle this winter. Output in the dominant services sector grew 1.6% on August, production sector output increased by 1.4% and construction sector output increased by 2.7%. 
The Scottish economy hit its lowest point in April when GDP was estimated to have fallen by almost a quarter, 23.8% over just two months. That compares to a drop of just 4% over 18 months when the financial crisis sparked a recession in 2008 and 2009. Scottish GDP is estimated to have risen by 14.7% in the quarter July to September after falls of by 3.2% and 19.4% in the first and second quarters of 2020, which constituted a recession. The quarterly figures show economic growth across all the main sectors of the economy. Output in construction was up 58% in the last quarter, with rises of 14.7% in the production sector, 12.7% for services and 3.1% for agriculture, forestry and fishing. This article is by Tom Gordon. Herald Scotland recorded on Wednesday 25th of November 2020. Books. Untold Story of the Gay Politicians Who Helped Bring Down Hitler by Neil Mackey. The Glamour Boys, The Secret Story of the Rebels Who Fought for Britain to Defeat Hitler. Chris Bryant, Bloomsbury, £25. What a frustrating book this is. There's so much wrong with the Glamour Boys and so much to praise. It could have been magnificent. Instead, it's slightly infuriating. The book sets out to tell the story of the gay MPs who challenged appeasement in the 1930s and rallied around Churchill to face down Hitler. It's by Labour's Chris Bryant, the first gay MP to celebrate his civil partnership in Parliament. The premise of the book is that in the pre-war years a group of gay MPs, sneeringly dubbed the Glamour Boys by appeasers, were in the vanguard of those facing down the Third Reich. They included Conservative MPs such as Ronnie Cartland, brother of the famous romance writer and 1920s socialite Barbara Cartland. Having seen what the Nazis were doing to their gay friends and lovers in Germany, arresting them, sending them to concentration camps, murdering them, they knew Hitler must be stopped. In theory, this should be a great slice of social and political history, delivered by the perfect author. But this book about war is at war with itself. The final result feels as if Bryant tried to splice two separate non-fiction works together, the story of life for gay men in the pre-war period and the story of the political battle against appeasement. Both are fascinating topics, both deserve to be written about well, but Bryant makes a bit of a mess of it. One page will take you deep into the world of gay men in the 1930s, the joy, the parties, the fear of arrest, the dread of blackmail and violence, the tragedy of lies and love being forced into the shadows, and the next page will leap without almost any subtlety or sag into the political machinations of Churchill versus Chamberlain. Bryant just tries to cram too much in. There's a veritable blizzard of names, dates and places more fitted to a conventional history book than the jaunty gossipy tone this book adopts. In one paragraph alone I counted 12 characters, too much for any reader to process intelligently. This book could and should have worked. It doesn't require a literary genius to take a historical subject like appeasement and give it a fresh perspective, in this case through the lives of the gay MPs who opposed Chamberlain. But Bryant, like many famous authors, appears to be a writer in need of a good editor, advising, slow down here, tighten up there, this bit is confusing, and do you really need that section? This is a problem that seems to be growing ever more persistent in British literature. 
Novelists, once they make their names, are allowed to turn what should be tight works of fiction into unnecessary doorstoppers. The same now seems to be true of non-fiction. Both sections of Bryant's book, The Life of Gay MPs and the Fight Against Appeasement, are excellent in their own ways, and for that alone the book is worth your money. The problem is the sloppy surgery in stitching these two sections together. Where the marks of the needle and the thread should have been invisible, we get a Frankenstein's monster, and like the monster, the book becomes lumbering for its lack of finesse. In terms of revelation and entertainment, it's the story of gay life before the Second World War, which is, almost inevitably, the more powerful. We all know the story of appeasement, at least somewhat. However, though most of us think we're wonderfully progressive and clued up on what happened to the gay community before homosexuality was eventually legalised, the best sections of this book prove us bitterly wrong. First, let's pause to remember that it wasn't until 1967 in England and Wales, and even later in Scotland and Northern Ireland, 1980 and 1982 respectively, that these nations of ours decided to stop sending people to prison and criminalising fellow human beings for the simple natural act of falling in love and having sex. What a stain on our history, and what a reminder that we still have to keep fighting so that all of us are treated with the same level of respect. When Bryant takes readers into the secret world that gay men and women had to inhabit in both Britain and Germany, he's at his very best. It's wonderfully evocative and deeply harrowing as we confront hate and fear. The book takes on a nightmarish feel when the Nazis take power, changing the liberal Berlin depicted in the film Cabaret, the only European city where gay men and women could live their lives with anything approaching the same freedoms as the straight community, into totalitarian hell. What doesn't quite work in terms of the book's grand concept is the idea that so many of the anti-appeasement contingent of the House of Commons were motivated primarily by their sexuality, that by seeing what Hitler was doing to gay men in Germany they were prompted to face down Nazism. I'm sure this was a motivating factor, but there's not enough meat put in the bones to validate that idea, and as a reader I was left wanting more and thinking that these MPs decided to take on Hitler quite simply because they were good people, regardless of their sexuality. Bryant really excels too when he's bringing to life the personalities on both sides of the appeasement battle. Nancy Astor, for instance, today remembered as a trailblazer for feminism, comes across as the most vile snob and rank anti-Semite imaginable. The book is also a reminder of just how close this country came to simply caving in to the threat of Nazi Germany. The final pages charting what happened to these men during the war against Hitler is especially moving after all the reader has gone through with them, and their struggle to protect humanity and democracy. No matter what motivated these MPs, their sexuality, their conscience, their bravery are most likely all three. We owe them a debt that can't be repaid. Bryant's book, regardless of its flaws, acknowledges that debt fulsomely. By Neil Mackey. Recorded from the Herald, 25th of November, 2020. Two Celtic stars face Europa League ban sweat during Sparta showdown. Alan Temple. Brian Christie and Diego Laxalt will both be walking disciplinary tightropes as Celtic attempt to salvage the Europa League dream against Sparta Prague tonight. Scotland hero Christie picked up his second caution of the group phase during the hoops chastening 4-1 defeat against the Czech Giants earlier this month. He was also booked in their opening fixture against Milan after entering the fray as a half-time substitute. Meanwhile, Laxalt, on loan from Milan, was shown a yellow card in each of the boys' first group, two group H matches against his parent club and Lille. 
Should either player pick up a third booking in Prague, they will be suspended for the glamour trip to face Milan on December 3rd. The loss of Christie or Laxalt would be a hammer blow for embattled Celtic boss Neil Lennon, with the duo proving to be among the few bright spots in recent weeks. The Herald, Wednesday the 25th of November 2020 News. COVID Scotland, Alzheimer's patient moved from hospital back to care home day after positive coronavirus test. This article is by Caitlin Hutchison. The family of a 70-year-old woman with Alzheimer's who had tested positive for coronavirus have branded the decision to move her from hospital into a care home reckless. The elderly patient began suffering symptoms including a high temperature and breathing difficulties and was taken from West Lothian's Livingston Care Home to St John's Hospital also in Livingston. She was taken in last Tuesday and tested positive a day later on Wednesday. But a relative was left baffled when they were told that their relative could be returned to the care home on Thursday as that was likely to have been where she caught the virus. A policy of hospital COVID patients having two negative tests prior to discharge to a care home was brought in back in April, unless in exceptional circumstances including end-of-life care, according to First Minister Nicola Sturgeon. The family member, speaking on condition of anonymity, said we are lost for words. I just struggle to understand the logic in sending someone who is COVID positive back into a care home when we have already had a high number of care home deaths. I would have liked to imagine there would have been a plan put in place after nine months for the elderly. Unfortunately, it still feels like there is little care for our most vulnerable and that is very upsetting. Maybe you can send people home if they live at home, but a care home is reckless and could be devastating. It could be a better setting for her and the carers know what they are doing with her but there are other people in there and other families affected and if someone else catches it, it can spread like wildfire. Families are already worried enough and staff are at risk as well. The woman was discharged from St John's Hospital into a care home the day after testing positive for COVID-19. Details of the case emerged amid calls from opposition parties to introduce a complete ban on discharging patients to care homes without two negative tests. Lothian MSP Neil Findlay, Scottish Labour, who has highlighted concerns about the case in Parliament, said when I raised this case at FMQs and asked if we were back to discharging COVID patients direct to care homes, Nicola Sturgeon was emphatic saying, and I quote, With the greatest respect, I do not accept that. There is no such policy and there will not be one. This case and many others show this is happening against the government's own guidance, putting residents and staff at risk. This is more evidence of the appalling way that older people have been treated during the last nine months. Health Secretary Jean Freeman said the guidance has been clear for hospital COVID discharges for several months and that exceptional circumstances are based on clinical judgment. She said it is right that doctors, based on their knowledge of the patient and experience, are able to exercise that judgment. 
Jackie Campbell, Chief Officer of Acute Services, NHS Lothian, said, Our standard process for discharging patients back into care homes requires the patients to test negative for COVID-19 twice prior to discharge. However, when a patient does not require acute hospital care, there are circumstances in which it can be better for a patient to return to the familiarity of their care home. In cases such as these, a discharge to a care home would only take place after consultation with our infection prevention and control team and the care home to ensure they are confident and content to continue to care for the returning resident safely. The needs and well-being of our patients are at the centre of this decision-making and it is only ever made in line with strict infection control policies. A Livingston Care Home spokesman has said they are working closely with Health Protection Scotland and NHS Lothian to monitor the situation and will continue to rigorously adhere to the guidelines regarding PPE and infection control with weekly staff testing in place. The spokesman added, We would like to thank our frontline care staff for their exceptional efforts during this pandemic. This article is by Caitlin Hutchison. Herald Scotland recorded on Wednesday 25th of November 2020. Granite Noir, Aberdeen's Crime Fiction Festival set to return in free online extravaganza by Caitlin Hutchison. Organisers of Granite Noir announced today that Aberdeen's Crime Fiction Festival will return in February 2021 as an online celebration of the very best homegrown and international crime writing. The digital programme will offer both live and pre-recorded author conversations, panel discussions, creative workshops and events for young people and is set to run from February 19 to 21, 2021. All events will be free to view and the full programme will be announced in the new year. Granite Noir is inspired by the Granite City, its history, its atmosphere and its strong sense of place and produced by Aberdeen Performing Arts on behalf of partners Belmont Filmhouse, Aberdeen City Libraries and Aberdeen City and Aberdeenshire Archives. Aberdeen Performing Arts Chief Executive Jane Spears said, This has been a challenging year not only for live events but also for the publishing industry. Granite Noir is a showcase for the very best in Scottish and international crime writing and also for the city of Aberdeen and we wanted to follow on from the tremendous success of the 2020 festival even if we can't welcome live audiences to our venues. We're looking forward to announcing a vibrant and exciting digital programme in January and welcoming audiences, albeit virtually, from all over the world to celebrate thrilling, murderous and mysterious crime fiction in all its forms with us. Granite Noir 2021 is supported by Aberdeen City Council and Creative Scotland. Councillor Marie Bolton, Aberdeen City Council's culture spokeswoman, said No one could have imagined what lay in store for us beyond February when we hosted our biggest and best Granite Noir yet. Just to show that you can't keep a great festival down, I'm delighted to help announce that next year's event will be taking place in February despite the challenge COVID-19 has set us. Throughout 2020, Aberdeen City Council and our partners have risen to this challenge magnificently through the creative use of online technology to stay in touch and host great virtual events. Granite Noir, even in its digital format, will offer crime fans the world over the same marvellous range of great authors and exciting events thanks to its ingenuity. 
Indeed, we're looking forward to bringing Aberdeen's much-loved crime fiction festival to the world via online technology and whet the appetite of fans wishing to visit Aberdeen when future events return to their original formats. Full programme details for Granite Noir 2021 will be announced in the new year and details can be found at www.granitenoir.com by Caitlin Hutchison. Recorded from the Herald, 26th of November 2020. Hebb's chief, Leanne Debster, steps down from Easter Road role after six years. Mark Hendry. Hebb's chief executive, Leanne Dempster, has made the decision to leave the club after six years in the role. Dempster took on the position in 2014 following the club's relegation to the championship and has helped re- the rebuilding job since. The former Motherwell chief plans to stay and help Hebb's find her successor, before she departs for a new challenge. The Hippies confirmed the news this afternoon. A statement read, Hibernian FC today announced that Chief Executive Leanne Dempster has decided to leave the club, after more than six busy and successful years at the helm at Easter Road. Leanne, who joined immediately after the club was relegated from the top tier, has enjoyed great success in rebuilding the fortunes of the club, including the historic and long-awaited Scottish Cup triumph in 2016, and returning to the top flight the following year after winning the championship, boosting season ticket sales and attendance levels in the process. Miss Dempster said, The club had been relegated when I joined, and I was determined, with the help of a terrific group of people, to rebuild and restore the club to make its supporters proud on and off the pitch. The cup win was the highlight, of course, but there have been many fantastic moments. I think it is genuinely the right time, both for the club and for me, to move on to a new chapter. It has been an intense and fulfilling time of my life. I have grown to love the club and the Hibernian family, but the club is in good hands and has an exciting future ahead of it. I wanted to make sure Ron settled in following the transaction, and I think we've achieved that. I've enjoyed working with him, and I've learned a lot in the process. Supporters should be optimistic and excited about Ron's plans for the club's future, and I know they will continue to support the club in the magnificent fashion that they have done during my time, especially during recent months when they absolutely stepped up when we most needed them. I thank every one of them for making this job such an enjoyable one. Now I look forward to the excitement of taking on a new challenge. Chairman Ron Gordon also revealed his disappointment at losing Dempster. I would have liked Leanne to stay. She has done a terrific job throughout her time at the club, and I know how highly regarded she is by every supporter and within football. She has explained that she believes it's the right time for her and for the club, that she is ready to pursue a new and different challenge, and that she wants to spend more time with her family. She has obviously thought long and hard about this, and we now have to accept and respect her view. I am happy to say she will work with us to ensure a smooth transition as we decide how to best move forward and thank her for her continued commitment to the club. She has definitely left her mark at Hibernian, and everyone at Hibs should be very grateful to her. I know I am, and all of us wish her every success. You are listening to The Herald Scotland, recorded on Thursday 26th November 2020. Chancellor Richie Sunak, a PM in waiting. An opinion article by Alison Rowett. Senior Politics and Features Writer You can tell a lot from a Chancellor's photo shoots, starting with whether he does them at all. 
Richie Sunak will do the boring old pre-budget pose on the pavement outside number 11, but he will go that extra photographic mile besides. If there is a winter economic plan to be released, or as yesterday, a spending review to be unveiled, in comes the photographer. Look carefully and you can chart the Chancellor's progress, and much else besides, through such images. He started off his photo shoots dressed in a casual jumper, gazing at a bank of computer screens and surrounded by books. The message? I've got a big brain and I'm always on, even when it looks like I'm off. That one was generally well received. Not so his pre-budget shoot of August 2020, being seen with a £160 travel mug, it keeps your brewer to the right temperature and can launch satellites into space, or something, was not a good look, when millions were worrying about the mortgage. It also reminded the public that the former Goldman Sachs banker and hedge fund manager is a wealthy man, the richest in the commons, say some. While his exact net worth is not known, when he started off his own hedge fund ten years ago, there was £557 million in the pot. The most recent photos, released this week, show he has learned his lesson. Gone is the travel mug, and in its place is a pretty, everyday-looking china cup. He's also pictured wearing a hoodie shirt over his shirt and tie, as though he's just popped a jumper on to save on heating much like the rest of us in these uncertain times. In another nice touch, he's seen practising the speech he gave to the Commons yesterday. Hard-working, humble, a man of deeds and words. He comes across well. With the state the economy is in, the Chancellor needs all the positive optics he can get. We knew the forecasts from the Independent Office for Budget Responsibility were going to be bad, but what the Chancellor presented to the Commons was the stuff of economic horror movies. Borrowing of £394 billion this year, the highest in peacetime history. The UK economy to shrink by 11.3% next year, the largest fall in output for 300 years. The economy not expected to return to pre-pandemic levels until late 2022. After the war on coronavirus, set to go on for some time yet, comes a long, slow slog back to anything approaching economic normality. To call it an economic emergency, as Mr Sunak did, almost bordered on understatement. Despite the enormity of the task ahead, the Chancellor had very little room for manoeuvre on the day. Faced with an unprecedented crisis in the public finances, he went so far and no further. One day he will have to consider deep spending cuts or increasing income tax, national insurance and VAT. But like St Augustine, not yet. In the meantime, he may do with a public sector pay freeze, exempting doctors and nurses, and cutting foreign aid from 0.7% to 0.5% of gross national income, a fall of £5 billion. The main focus of his spending review was jobs, and rightly so. The OBR expects unemployment to rise to 7.5% next year, some 2.6 million people. That is a terrifying prospect, particularly for one of the hardest-hit groups, 18-24-year-olds. 
We saw only too clearly in the 1980s what happened when a generation was thrown on the scrap heap, and that was under a Conservative government too. There is one particular job with which Mr Sunak is increasingly linked, and that is the one currently held by his boss, Boris Johnson. On the subject of bad optics, it was telling yesterday that prior to the Chancellor's statement, Mr Johnson conducted Prime Minister's questions live from what looked like a broom cupboard in number 10. Self-isolating as he is due to contact with someone who has tested positive for COVID-19, Forced to defend the indefensible behaviour of his Home Secretary, Priti Patel, accused of bullying by an independent inquiry, the PM looked far removed from the fray, a minor presence on the fringe of events, unlike his Chancellor. Mr Sunak would not do anything so gauche as to pitch for the top job in any overt way. He hardly needs to. In poll after poll, he comes out ahead of the PM on perceived fitness to do the job. Mr Sunak's star has been on the rise for some time, even before he was cast in the role of protector of jobs and dispenser of grants. He came to the attention of many when he stood in for his party leader in the televised election debates. He shone next to Nicola Sturgeon, no mean feat. Big political player recognised similar with the two making everyone else look minor league. How would Scotland's First Minister fare against a Prime Minister Sunak? While he has enjoyed the same privileged background as most of his predecessors, he is charismatic and approachable, in a way none of them has been. As well as appearing to understand everyday practical problems, he can do the vision thing, What other Chancellor, as he did yesterday, has ever spoken of a spending plan to release kindness? To say such a thing when you have just cut overseas aid, a clear breach of a manifesto promise and, as it stands, against the law, was astonishing. If Mr Sunak wanted to dispatch a signal to the right of the party that he will do whatever it takes to get the finances on a more even keel, consider it sent. As for the uproar caused, that will add to the Chancellor's standing in some quarters. Overall, Mr Sunak managed to be generous in some areas, including potentially those red wall seats in the north of England, while ushering in what amounts to cuts in public spending. To many, this will sound exactly like the return of austerity, hitting the poorest hardest. We know what will be held to blame for the economic pain to come, the pandemic. But who will carry the can in the UK government? Today, more than ever, it will not be Mr Sunak. The Herald, Thursday the 26th of November 2020. News. A82 public consultation aims to reduce accidents. This article is by Caroline Wilson. It is one of the most scenic roads in Scotland, but it is also one of the most dangerous due to the layout and high volumes of traffic, especially at the height of the summer tourist season. Now, a motoring expert has said that more use of 2 plus 1 overtaking lanes and raising the speed limit for HGVs could help cut accidents on the notorious A82, which links Glasgow and Inverness. 
A public consultation is being launched aimed at improving the safety of the A82 gateway to the Highlands, Trunk Road, which twists its way via Loch Lomond, Glencoe, Fort William and Loch Ness. Road safety campaigners say the road has been under the radar because of a focus on the A9 in Perthshire, generally regarded as the country's worst for safety. Statistics published last year revealed there was a crash resulting in a casualty every three days during 2018. Since 2017, more than 20 people have lost their lives through accidents on the A82 and there has been a series of crashes in recent weeks. Herald figures published earlier this year found there has been 73 serious or fatal accidents between January 2017 and summer 2019, the highest tally in Scotland. The notorious Loch Lomond stretch has benefited from widening, while significant works are planned from Tarbot to Inverarnin. Kate Forbes, SMP AMSP for Sky, Loch Arbor and Badenoch, who is launching the consultation, said its purpose is to identify the other areas most in need of safety measures, which can then be prioritised for work. Drivers cite the stretch from Glencoe to Fort William and the area around Loch Ness as particular trouble spots. Neil Gregg, Policy Director for motoring charity I Am Road Smart, said greater deployment of overtaking lanes, which are said to have dramatically reduced head-on crashes in Sweden should be considered. Two plus one roads consist of two lanes in one direction and one lane in the other, alternating every few kilometres and separated usually with a steel cable barrier. He said, it's a road with lots of character, but one that I think has been possibly a bit under the radar compared to the A9 and the A83 rest and be thankful of late. It is a major and important route to the Highlands, and I think it has some real problems, for example, at Loch Ness. In an ideal world, you would like to see the resources being targeted at the areas where accidents are happening, so it should be data-led, but my feeling about the road is that a lot of the problems are caused by frustration through lack of overtaking opportunities. You can't feasibly duel most of the A82 in the way of the A9 because of the nature of the land it goes through. What we would like to see is more overtaking opportunities, and that could be done with trying out better designs of 2 plus 1. That was tried on the A9 and wasn't particularly successful, but it's accepted practice in Sweden and the rest of Europe that you do this. We would probably need to look at new designs of it because what would happen is that people would use it as a three-lane road. There is a section of 2 plus 1 at Loch Lomond which seems to work quite well. If people know there are overtaking opportunities ahead, they are more inclined to wait for those opportunities. Mr Gregg said raising the speed limit for the biggest HGVs in England, it has to be lifted to 50 miles an hour from 40, could also help. He added, it sounds a bit counterintuitive, but it seems to make people more comfortable and not attempt silly overtakes. People think they are being held up by an HGV doing 40 miles an hour, but that is the speed limit. In England, it's 50 and it hasn't led to crashes. The good thing about the consultation is that they are treating it as a whole route and an important route.
a combination of major engineering work to straighten out some of the corners, more overtaking, junction improvements and widening where they can would be good. People do get fatigued on these roads and I also think there does need to be more stopping opportunities. SNP MSP Kate Forbes, whose constituency includes the majority of the A82 route, said she will use the survey results to lobby for realistic and evidence-based improvements. She said, It is widely accepted that the A82 is in need of further investment and upgrade work. People like me who drive the road on a regular basis will know some of the best and worst bits, and that is the purpose of this survey. The consultation will close just before Christmas and it is hoped that the results will be announced in early 2021. To contribute to the survey, go to www.surveymonkey.co.uk forward slash small r forward slash capital V, capital J, capital Z, capital L, capital K, capital L, 3. That's www.surveymonkey.co.uk forward slash small r forward slash all capitals V, J, Z, L, K, L and the number 3. This article is by Caroline Wilson. Herald Scotland recorded on Thursday 26th of November 2020. BBC at risk of losing older viewers as audience satisfaction waning. By Caitlin Hutchison. The BBC has long been up against streaming giants, with many of its younger viewers jumping ship in favour of Netflix or Amazon Prime. However, now older viewers' satisfaction with the BBC appears to be waning for the first time, a report by the TV watchdog has said. Over 55s have been the BBC's bread and butter audience, using and valuing it the most. But the regulator's annual report in the BBC states for the first time satisfaction levels among audiences who typically use the BBC the most and has been most satisfied with it are beginning to show signs of waning. It said the BBC's need to respond to audiences, habits and changing markets is becoming more urgent. The report covers the period April 2019 to March 2020, before means testing of the TV licence for over 75s began in August. Vicky Cook, Ofcom Director of Broadcasting Policy, said older viewers are still likely to be more satisfied than the average UK audience with BBC services. This year our research does indicate the first signs that the level of satisfaction is starting to decrease. So that means their audience numbers are also beginning to decline. Overall positive impressions of the BBC among adults aged 55 plus fell from 64% in 2017-18 to 62% in 2019-20. Overall weekly reach of the BBC with the same age group dropped for the first time from 96% to 93%. Services such as Netflix, YouTube and Spotify are continuing to attract audiences away from the BBC and other public service broadcasters, the report said. While BBC Radio and Audio Services continue to lose listeners, national commercial radio and specialist online services are seeing growth. Recently, Radio 2 presenter Graham Norton announced he would be joining Virgin Radio, following in the footsteps of Chris Evans. The report said that the BBC's overall reach is still very high, with almost 9 in 10 adults consuming its content on a weekly basis. But the pandemic accelerated shifts towards subscription video on demand, 
with around 12 million people taking up a new subscription during lockdown. There was also an increase in older viewers using the services. The report states overall audiences to the BBC are in gradual decline. It reaches 87% of adults in 2020 compared to 92% three years ago. If audiences do not consider the BBC a core part of their viewing, they may not see the value in the licence fee. The BBC also needs to broaden its reach and appeal to a wider range of people, in particular audiences from minority ethnic backgrounds and those in lower socioeconomic groups. The report praises the broadcaster for a high volume of news and current affairs and its learning and educational content, and it says audience satisfaction generally continues to be relatively high. But in the election period in November-December 2019, attitudes towards BBC News among some audiences, in particular women, were lower in this period than in previous years. Ofcom said it expects to see the BBC transitioning from being primarily a broadcaster in TV and radio channels to one that focuses on delivery through its digital on-demand services. The number of people engaging with the BBC has continued to fall across nearly all BBC services and at a faster rate among younger people, it says. The overall audience to BBC One dropped by 5.4 percentage points since 2017, while its reach to 16 to 24 year olds dropped by 9.4 percentage points. The average daily time spent with the BBC, currently hitting the headlines over its Panorama interview with Diana Prince of Wales 25 years ago, dropped by a further 10 minutes in 2019 compared to 2018. The report added that there are groups who continue to be less satisfied with the BBC, particularly people in Scotland, those in lower socio-economic groups and disabled people. The government is preparing to publish its response to a consultation on decriminalisation of non-payment of the licence fee by Caitlin Hutchison. You are listening to The Herald Scotland, recorded on Friday 27th November 2020. Why Sturgeon might not actually be leading an unstoppable force. An article by Kevin Haig, columnist. As Nicholas Sturgeon prepares for the SNP party conference this weekend, apparently cruising towards another Holyrood victory in May 2021, and with opinion polls suggesting support for independence has never been higher, it would be tempting to conclude that she leads the party and a movement with unstoppable momentum. That would be a mistake. Focus groups carried out by these islands show that support for independence depends on a near-blind face in Nicola Sturgeon and on voters remaining uninformed about simple facts. It is support built on sand. Roughly 20% of that support comes from Scots who have switched to favouring independence, having voted no in 2014 and remain in 2016. Our focus groups targeted these voters with the aim of understanding their motivations for switching and how their minds might be changed. These groups tend to describe their choice as a binary one, It's either Boris's Brexit or Nicola's independence. Given they perceive Boris Johnson to be a bumbling embarrassment who has no respect for Scotland, leading a Conservative party in Westminster who couldn't give a damn about Scotland, it's hardly surprising that they feel drawn to Nicola Sturgeon. She shines in comparison. 
no doubt aided by her daily coronavirus briefings on the BBC. Sturgeon is admired as a clear and concise communicator who these voters respect. I wouldn't be ashamed of my country if Nicola was in charge. But it's only seen as a binary choice because the Labour Party is missing in action. Several people in our focus group suggested that they viewed Keir Starmer in a positive light and that, if Keir was pro-union, that could change their view on independence. Some might argue that Starmer has already adopted an unequivocally pro-union stance. But these focus group participants were evidently unaware of it. When the Labour Party created the welfare state, it was a tangible realisation of the value in the bonds of a common citizenship. By standing up for those core Labour values of unity and solidarity today, Starmer can set out his stall as somebody implacably opposed to separatism. It's clear that this would be a game-changer for many in our focus groups, but it could also become a defining feature of Starmer's UK Labour Party, understanding Scotland, respecting devolution and uniting the four nations of the UK. But the biggest threat to Sturgeon's hegemony is not a resurgent union-defending Labour Party, it is economic reality. Our focus groups were asked to think about the value of the UK as a sharing union, which smooths out economic ups and downs and deploys resources where they are needed most. There was scepticism towards the idea that this sharing actually takes place, and in many cases the idea that Scotland might currently benefit from higher public spending as a result was rejected outright. When presented with the simple facts, data provided by the Scottish Government which shows that Scotland currently gets back more in spending than it generates in taxes, the participants' reactions were surprising. We might have expected them to accept the veracity of the data, but shrug their shoulders. But that is not what happened. Very consistently, they simply refused to believe that the numbers could be true. It became clear that they could not reconcile their support for independence with the fiscal truth. If this was true, surely nobody would support independence, said one independence supporter. We were treated to a fat denier's greatest hits. The oil revenues aren't included, the figures are manipulated, lots of revenue is missing, and so forth. Suffice to say the objections to the figures were misplaced. The Scottish Government economists who compile the data don't miss stuff out or manipulate the figures to make Scotland look bad. Why would they? When the fact denying myths were dispelled, the last two lines of defence consistently offered were absolute trust in Nicola Sturgeon herself. If Sturgeon knows these figures, she must have a plan. And variations on a theme of England would get rid of us if that were true. If support for independence is built on fat denial and blind faith in Nicola Sturgeon, it's built on sand. Politicians come and go and their popularity waxes and wanes. But separation would be forever. What would happen to support for independence were Sturgeon no longer First Minister? What if, through becoming better informed, these voters decided their faith had been misplaced? Sturgeon would do well to remember the old adage, 
that trust is hard-earned and easily lost. Those who oppose separation should press our First Minister to be honest with the people, be honest about the public spending cuts that would inevitably result from the loss of UK-wide sharing. Be honest that we can't both keep the pound and join the EU. Be honest about the fiscal austerity that would be required to launch a currency and meet the EU's deficit criteria. Be honest about the implications of erecting a border between Scotland and England. It's not Project Fear, it's Project Fact. And when Sturgeon tries to gloss over these issues, she sounds like nothing so much as a Brexiteer. But while a resurgent, unabashedly pro-Union Labour Party and a more well-informed electorate would damage support for independence, when our focus group participants asked, then why are they so determined to keep us? They were expressing a fundamental, deep-rooted concern. Scots need to believe that they are valued as part of the UK. It's about pride, self-esteem and self-respect. But right now these Scots feel unloved, disrespected and condescended to by Westminster. When did you last hear a Westminster politician of any party articulate why Scotland matters to the United Kingdom? Why Britain would be immeasurably diminished were Scotland to leave? Politicians outside Scotland who would defend the Union need to find their voices and articulate why Scotland matters to them. And Scots need to hear it. The party political landscape may change, faith in Sturgeon could falter, and facts might start to bite. But it will all count for nothing unless Scots feel valued, because above all, and in the words of one of our focus group participants, it's how they make us feel. This article is by Kevin Haig, chairman of pro-union think tank, These Islands. www.these-islands.co.uk www.these-islands.co.uk The Herald, Friday the 27th of November 2020. News. Bifab claims Scottish Government untruthful over financial claims. This article is by Caitlin Hutchison. Accusations of untruthfulness and inaccuracy have been made against the Scottish Government over allegations a lack of financial support from Bifab's Canadian owner is to blame for the company's problems. Last month, a £2 billion deal collapsed for Burnt Island Fabrications, Bifab, to manufacture eight wind turbine jackets at its yards in Methyl, Fife, as part of the Nart Nagoich NNG project. The UK and Scottish governments have said they have no legal route to provide further financial support to the company, which was acquired by Canadian-based JV Driver in April 2018 after the Scottish Government rescued Bifab in 2017. On Tuesday, Scotland's Economy Secretary Fiona Hislop said that the main issue leading to the problems 
has been the unwillingness of parent company and majority shareholder, JV Driver, to provide working capital, investment or guarantees for BIFAB. But in a statement published today, BIFAB said Scottish ministers continue to focus on JV Driver's alleged lack of investment, guarantees and capital as the primary cause for its current situation. This cannot be further from the truth. BIFAB said that recognising the growing state aid challenges faced by Scottish ministers early in 2020, JV Driver offered on numerous occasions to transfer some or all of its shares in BIFAB to Scottish ministers at no cost to the Scottish purse, but ministers never pursued it. The company said this offer was made to facilitate an ownership position by Scottish ministers that could support further investment if and when required. This offer was never pursued by Scottish ministers. This offer still stands today. The company said BIFAB and its management were given no access or opportunity to address the BIFAB working group set up by the UK and Scottish governments and have not been contacted by it. BIFAB added Scottish ministers also point to the lack of a long-term business plan as a secondary causal factor to the current situation. Again, this is inaccurate. JV Driver prepared a long-form, multi-phase business plan for Scottish ministers prior to acquiring BIFAB. BIFAB said many nations have local supply chain protections that limit the amount of international sourcing available to major energy infrastructure projects, but that no such legislation exists in Scotland or the wider UK. As a result, thousands of high-paying fabrication jobs are being lost to the Middle East and Asia, and only Scottish and UK ministers have the ability to change this policy, according to BIFAB. The company said ultimately it appears the NNG project will be lost to BIFAB, along with the 400 to 500 jobs it promised to create. It stated, as a result of recent correspondence from Scottish ministers, it is apparent that creditor support from the Scottish ministers required to pursue critical solutions for BIFAB will be unavailable. While incredibly disappointed, BIFAB management continues to consider all options available to the business. The Scottish secretaries of the GMB and Unite Unions, Gary Smith and Pat Rafferty, described the situation as a growing scandal. They added, the signal this sends out to the renewables industry is clear. It's business as usual. The jobs of the future will continue to be exported to the rest of the world and subsidised by the bill payer to the tune of billions. At best, Britain will get scraps off the table from its own offshore wind market. But it looks like both governments have buried any credible hopes for a meaningful green jobs recovery in Scotland. Scottish Greens Energy spokesperson and Fife MSP Mark Russell said the Scottish Government cannot bemoan the fact that it's a minority shareholder with no seat on the board while at the same time turning down opportunities to step up and become a majority shareholder. BIFAB urgently needs a recovery plan that can secure interim work and deliver promised green jobs while the Scottish Government works towards state ownership that is still in line with the market rules it has to adhere to. The Scottish and UK governments have been contacted for comment. This article is by Caitlin Hutchison. (laughs) 
Herald Scotland recorded on Friday 27th of November 2020. TV. No man's land sees countless lives diverge in the midst of a war-torn Syria. By Herald Magazine. Set in the midst of the Syrian civil war, gritty new drama No Man's Land sheds a light on the conflicts taking place in the Middle East. A tangle of lives from across the globe that intertwine at the centre of a conflict zone, the eight-part series focuses on Frenchman Antoine Habert, who mourns the death of his sister following a suicide bombing in the war-torn nation. Except all is not what it seems. As Habert catches sight of a woman he believes to be his sister in news footage of the conflict, the discovery triggers a rescue mission in which he ventures to the centre of the IS-ravaged country. Directed by Oded Ruskin and starring James Krishna Floyd, Felix Moati, Melanie Thierry and James Purefoy, the series sees countless lives diverge as Islamic State sympathisers, volunteer militia and aid organisations cross paths with shadowy operatives. Taking on the shape-shifting role of Stanley, a shadowy member of a humanitarian organisation, the role was one that Pennyworth and Rome actor Purefoy56 was able to play with and manipulate. So much of it is hidden, and when you're playing characters that aren't telling the truth, the audience sort of knows you're lying, he declares with a smirk. One of the difficulties with it is if the audience knows you're lying and the character you're speaking to doesn't know you're lying, then the audience are constantly looking to see whether or not they would buy your lie if they were that other person. You play with the audience and the audience's expectations of you and of your character. It's fun toying with people like that. No Man's Land is a dark and treacherous tale that reflects the realities of current conflicts. It's one that Purefoy enjoyed as much as for its glints of hope as he did for its dramatically dark elements. Many of the strands of these stories are about people taking a step in a direction where they didn't know where that road is going to end up, and what they're going to end up having to do in order to survive the choices that they have made, he explains. It's an interesting concept in terms of the little links of a chain that make people down a path in their lives that they really didn't know they were going to go down until it's slightly too late. The subject matter. I think the scripts are really beautifully written, and this is not a subject matter that I'd seen a great deal of, either in films or on television, remarks Purefoy. I think one of the things they were interested in is not making it a piece about geopolitics, but more a piece about individuals caught up in this conflict. It feels a lot like the Syrian civil war has slipped off our radar somewhat. It's still going on, it's still raging, and it seemed like a good idea to be doing something about that, and just shining a light on it again. The mystery surrounding his character. Stanley is incredibly enigmatic and he does appear to be in many different places simultaneously and his backstory, depending on who he's dealing with at any one time, changes all the time, notes Purefoy. His sexuality changes, where he's come from changes, so you never quite know who he is. And even when you think he's telling the truth, you're still not quite sure if he's telling the truth. You get to play with expectations and it's interesting how he's highly intelligent and super manipulative in the sense that he puts whatever version of himself he thinks will go down best with the person he's talking to, which we all do to a certain degree. But yes, he's really not averse to telling absolute whoppers of lies in order to get what he wants. And it's not what he wants, but what his paymaster wants. He's incredibly cryptic, and we do find out. I think by the end of the show we understand who he is, and where he's from, and who he's working for. The director. It's something I'm very proud to be involved with, because I think Audit the director, our mad genius director that we have, who directed all eight episodes of it, which is a very rare in television for one director to do it. 
normally what happens is you have maybe two directors and so while one director is filming, the other one is scouting locations and editing the one he's just been doing. But Odid was nothing like that. Odid was just out there every single day with incredible energy, style and empathy, being able to deliver the day's schedule every single day for months and months. The intelligence research. I just finished doing another show which is now on Amazon Prime about a CIA officer, a grizzled cynical CIA field officer. So that was sort of the first spiral that I'd played and I'd only just finished doing that when I started doing this. There are many similarities. I was able to bring a great deal of research that I'd already done into playing a spy and what they have to do and the corrosive effect of being an intelligence officer has on your private life, what that means to you as you're doing it. The spies and anybody in that world, they're always fascinating. Fifty Shades of Grey is really nothing in comparison to the espionage world. You know it's a million shades of grey. Actually, being an intelligence officer of any kind, there's always going to be a corrosive effect on your personality and your life, and yet you continue to do it because it's a very addictive job to do. No Man's Land, available now on Stars Play, by Herald Magazine. And that was this week's Herald. Thank you for listening. 